As you remain standing, you can grab your Bible and turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 1. Tonight, we're going to think about verses 19 through 26. But let me start our reading with those final words in verse 18. And then I'll pray for God's blessing on our study and we'll begin together. So listen once again as the Lord does speak to you now through his perfect word. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that you have, by the work of your sovereign spirit within our hearts, brought us again to new life in your Son, that you have even granted unto us a heavenly inheritance that you are keeping for us in that same Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to give us that hope and comfort that belongs to knowing him, to help us to treasure him rightly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Jeremy Taylor was an old English theologian that was once called the Shakespeare of divines. And kids, that's just a fancy way of saying he was a theologian who had a way with words. In the century or so after the English Reformation, he was largely considered by many to be one of the most eloquent expositors of the Christian life, at least in the Anglican tradition. And two of his books probably reveal that better than any other. Uh, one was published in 1650, and it was simply titled, Rules and Exercises for Holy Living. And I suppose that, you know, if that was a book that was republished in our time, it would generate at least some degree of interest, because if you pay attention to best-selling books in our Christian world, many years pass by with most of the books on such charts being little more than manuals on how to live the Christian life, how to enjoy Jesus Christ in our time here on earth. Uh, he followed up that best-selling book with a companion volume, that was simply titled, Rules and Exercises for Holy Dying. And I suppose if you published that book today, it wouldn't find near the size of the audience that the first book would find today. Uh, because I think you would probably agree with me that we live in a time that's so fixated on the immediate realities of life here on earth. And sometimes, isn't it true, it's, it's understandable why it is that way. Uh, that we can actually forget that there is a genuine Christian duty not just to think about life in Christ here but to think about even the day of our death that is soon going to dawn upon us. And what you're going to see tonight in our text in Philippians is the Apostle Paul is so fixated 
not only on life in Christ, but dying in Christ, and the joy and the delight that belong to both of them, that he gets to a point where he says, I can't decide which one I'm going to choose. Maybe I'm going to live. Maybe I'm going to die. And we want to learn something about that mature joy that he brings to our attention tonight. So, the simple context, remember, of Philippians is this. Paul is in house arrest in Rome. He's chained to a Roman guard. He's told us recently in the previous two paragraphs that he doesn't consider this imprisonment to be a defeat, a discouragement. He's not disgruntled by it because he says, believe it or not, he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel to such a degree that it's known throughout the whole imperial guard that my suffering is for Christ and all the Roman Christians, well, they're, they're emboldened by my suffering to, to share Christ all the more courageously. And then he went on to say that he rejoiced in all kinds of people that were preaching Jesus Christ, some from negative intentions, some from even sinful ambitions. But he was so fixated on the Savior, something that's going to come to the forefront again tonight. He says, I rejoice in anyone who sincerely is preaching Jesus Christ, which is why we started our reading at the end of verse 18. You'll notice those final five words, yes, and I will rejoice. So you have this connection between last week's text and tonight's text, which is that common connection in Philippians, which is that of joy. He's simply saying, hey, I look at my present sufferings. And it's okay. It's joyful. The gospel's expanding. It's progressing here in the area of Rome. I rejoice in the preaching of Jesus Christ. And what Paul's going to do tonight is expand the horizon of his perspective, and even call us, isn't he, to expand our perspective on the horizon of time to realize that it's, it's possible for a Christian to not only rejoice in life's present circumstances, but even those future realities that belong to our final breath, that belong to our, our final day. And I wonder if you're the kind of person that can sincerely say that no matter life's circumstances, no matter life's joys, no matter life's sorrows, no, no matter life's happiness, no, no matter life's hardship, uh, that the common note that, that people hear from your life is, is that of joy. And, and I would imagine, and I probably think that you would agree with me, is that None of us in the room tonight can say that we've reached that point of such sincere, elevated Christian maturity that we can say, yes, in every single situation and circumstance, now there's joy to be found in our life. But we're going to see something about how Paul's model and teaching tonight helps us along to that comprehensive joy that's found in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the theme that I want to bring to your attention in our short study together tonight is, is what it means to rejoice in life and death. So rejoicing in life and death, that's what I want you to see. And we're going to see it in three headings along the way. So the first thing I want you to see is Paul's confidence. You notice again, verse 19, why is he abounding in joy? He says, for I know through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, that being his suffering, this will turn out for my deliverance. And that final word uh, there in verse 19, it's the normal New Testament word for salvation. Uh, so you kind of have to ask the question when you're studying this part of Philippians, when Paul's thinking about confidently being delivered from his present hardship, uh, what's the kind of deliverance he has in mind? Is he thinking simply of physical deliverance and salvation, that he's going to be let loose from Roman imprisonment? That's possible. Uh, is he thinking about this kind of final spiritual salvation that belongs to the last day for all those people that have trusted in Jesus Christ? And that's possible too. I actually think it's probably that one. 
Uh, because he's going to use similar language many years in the future when he's speaking to Timothy, his young protege in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, when he's saying that the Lord Jesus is going to rescue me from the lion's mouth and will deliver me, he's using that same word, deliver me into his heavenly kingdom. And so what he's seemingly saying here is, I, I rejoice in my suffering, I'm confident in my suffering because I know that God is using the suffering to bring me into his heavenly kingdom. Do you know that one reason that you can rejoice in suffering is because it's one of God's favorite tools to give his beloved children skill and endurance? How would you know what it means to endure if you didn't suffer? How would you know what it means to persevere if life didn't get hard? And Paul is saying, you can rejoice in your suffering, confidently knowing that it's going to turn out for your deliverance. And you'll see, students, he's got two reasons for his confidence, the first of which is the prayers of God's people. Notice again, verse 19, he says, I I know that through your prayers, this will turn out for my deliverance. I do hope you know that church leaders need the prayers of God's people, that even someone like the great apostle Paul, he depended on the prayers of God's people. I wonder when was the last time you prayed for your leaders Might you know something more of God's grace in your life through the ministry of his church if you might daily pray for your church leaders. We can't do anything, can we, without the prayers of God's people interceding for us. So he's confident in part because the prayers of God's people. Also, verse 19 says, the power of Christ's spirit. Because again, he says that I know through the help of Christ's spirit, this will turn out for my deliverance. Uh, Like a number of you, recently our kids uh, received some Christmas gifts, and our children are at this age where uh, it seems like every time Christmas rolls around, extended family members will get at least one of the children a large Lego set. And some of you might sympathize with me that when I see that wrapping paper open and the Lego box reveal itself, I tremble with with fear and shaking because I know hours of my life are soon going to be devoted to putting the Lego set together because it's just too complex for the young child to do it. But they'll try to do it, won't they? They'll work hard, urgently, diligently, and invariably in my experience, they'll call upon a sibling, call upon a parent, say, hey, can you help me because I can't get this done. And there's truth, isn't there, in the Christian life that we don't live isolated, do we? We live in community. We need not only the prayers of God's people, but the power of Christ's spirit. As the prophet Zechariah said, not by might or power, but by my spirit, declares the Lord. You, You can do nothing apart from Christ's spirit. And even the Apostle Paul knew that. And so he's confident, isn't he, because of the prayers, because of the power. He goes on, notice verse 20, to say, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Uh, The word there for, for honored It means something like to make large or to make great. That's why you might have a translation in front of you that speaks about, for for now as always, Christ will be magnified in me. I have a good pastor friend that loves to pray a three-word prayer every time he goes up to preach, and it simply is, Jesus, be big. And that's what Paul is saying here, isn't he? I have have confidence that no matter what happens to me, Jesus is going to be big in my life. Not only my life but also my death. You see the end of verse 20, Christ will be honored, magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. So he's rejoicing in life and death. He's got confidence. And that confidence stems from his conviction. 
That's the second thing I want you to see tonight, Paul's conviction. From this famous text, notice verse 21, where he simply says, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I was hanging out with a friend recently that was remarking about his frustration when he would get to his gym early in the morning, because it was at the morning hour, of course, that he was used to arriving in his normal rhythm. And it would be relatively empty. But as many of you would probably realize, this time of year, a normal slow morning hour in the gym was actually quite crowded uh, with countless people making good in their attempt to obey, if you will, their New Year's resolution to be in the gym along the way. And I can tell you that in the beginning of this year of our Lord, 2023, students, you could find not too many verses in Scripture in so few words that give you a brilliant resolution not just for this calendar year, but for your entire existence. For to me, is to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In the original language of the New Testament, uh, what Paul actually writes down uh, underscores just the degree to which he's decisive in this resolution. It would mean something more literally like, for me, the life, Christ, and the death, gain. We might say it differently if you translate it in a different way. For to me, to live, Christ. To die, gain. What does it even mean to, to live is Christ? I think it's probably best illustrated by what he's going to soon say a few paragraphs later at the beginning of chapter 3 where he talks about he counts all things that used to mark his life as rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing and being found in Jesus Christ. That's why one old preacher would capture the essence well of what it means to live as Christ by saying, for me to live as Christ is this. The preaching of Christ is the business of my life. The presence of Christ is the cheer of my life. The image of Christ is the crown of my life. The spirit of Christ is the life of my life. The love of Christ, the power of my life, the will of Christ, the law of my life, and the glory of Christ. Well, that's the end of my life. To live? Christ. But again, he's spanning the horizon of time, isn't he? And in a way that confronts so many modern assumptions, he says, secondly, to die? Gain. As students, I want you to realize the degree to which he is confronting modern assumptions about death because we live in a world, don't we, that not only wants to minimize death, but wants you to know that death is loss. And you could translate it differently. Saying, Paul's saying, well, well, death? Profitable. Why? Well, he's going to go on and tell us, isn't he, in the coming verses exactly what it means, but we could simply say at this point, uh, to, or urge ourselves to consider at this point, what the Christian gains at death. What do you gain at death? Well, you gain entrance, don't you, into God's eternal kingdom. You finally obtain that inheritance that's been kept in heaven for you. Uh, you enjoy finally, fully, eternally forgiveness and everlasting rest in the presence of God. Uh, but the, the central gain, isn't it, of dying is what old theologians would call the beatific vision. It's seeing the king in his beauty. I, I wonder if you will gain anything when you die. The Christian gains everything when they die. But someone outside of Jesus Christ, they lose everything when they die. That's why it's so decisive, Paul's joy in Jesus, that he finds himself in this dilemma. Notice of verse 22. 
He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. And at children, you need to know, it's not as though that Paul is saying here, he actually has a genuine possibility of choosing life or genuine possibility of choosing death. He's speaking more about preference. Well, you know, I really don't know what I would choose, is what he's telling the Philippians. Maybe I'll choose life or, or maybe I'll choose death. For of course, verse 23 says, I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better Have you ever reached a place in suffering and hardship and affliction where you could genuinely and sincerely echo those words of Paul? Yeah. To die, that's far better. But not because the pain would end, but the sight would be received of a king and of a savior. It's one thing to long for the pain to end, and gloriously it does end. It's another thing to look on the hardship and the hurt and say, you know what's even better? And the pain ending as being in the presence of Jesus Christ. And guess what? The pain around him is always disappearing and even eternally gone. So he's speaking about this language of, of preference. He, he's wondering if he's going to choose, isn't he, this fruitful ministry continuing or is he going to depart and be with Christ? That's uh, far better. And it leads then to our third and final section, Paul's concern. So he's got this confidence. He's got this conviction. To live, well, that's Christ. To die, that's gain. Uh, what's the concern that's going to drive him, if, if we can say it, to even a decisive moment? Well, notice verse 24. He says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. His, his sincere and genuinely deep delight in Jesus Christ and being with him and seeing him and communing with him forever and ever, it's not erasing his calling as an apostle is what he recognizes is what he understands. So it's why he says, look at the end of our passage, verse 25 and 26. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming again to you. It's as though he says, hey guys, here's the deal. I'd rather leave. But you know what? I'm going to stay because it's better for you that I stay for your increase in Christ. If you understand the letter of Philippians well, you know it's only a few sentences later in this wonderful book that he's going to exhort the Philippians to consider others as better than themselves or yourself, to humble yourself and seek out the interests of others. And here, even in chapter 1, Paul's modeling what that already looks like. He says, my preference is to do this, but actually I think it's better for you that I do this. So I'm going to stay and remain with you for your growth in Christ's likeness. Have you had any time recently where you've laid aside a godly preference, a good thing, in order to serve others, to see them increase in grace, to see them grow in Christ? That only happens with the heart that's overflowing, of course, in love for Christ and knows what it means to rejoice in life and to rejoice also in death. Uh, One of the things that the Reformation recovered in the 16th century was the use of of catechisms in ordinary Protestant churches. Uh, Martin Luther, in his typically bombastic way, uh, would boast that his catechizing of Germany was so extensive and great 
that even a 15-year-old German could outperform all past theologians in a doctrinal exam. Such was his catechetical power. And, and probably the most famous question and answer in terms of Protestant catechisms is actually one that comes from our church's shorter catechism. Uh, what is the chief end of man? Uh, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And I think the second most famous uh, catechism question and answer comes from the Heidelberg Catechism, which simply asks at the beginning, what is your only comfort in life and death? And you could twist that catechism question just a bit here in Philippians chapter 1 and give yourself even a catechism of the Christian life according to the Apostle Paul. What's your only focus in life and death? The answer is simple, children, two words. Jesus Christ. What's your only focus in life and death? Well, Jesus Christ. Let me show you two final things as, as we close about this focus. Perhaps it's something that you might even use in your life spiritually this new year. <clears throat> Number one, focus on progressing in Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 25. He's saying, I'm going to remain with you. I'm going to continue in my apostolic ministry. Why? In the verse 25, for your progress and joy in the faith. It was the beginning of the section that we looked at last week that talked about Paul's delight in the gospel's progress throughout the Roman Imperial Guard. And it's here that it's ending now with his delight in the gospel progressing through the church there at Philippi. He wants to see them grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our boys and I were just a week or two ago, we were watching this soccer documentary that, uh, of a team that's led by probably the most famous soccer coach in the world right now. And there was this scene in the documentary where he was parading around the training pitch, you know, exhorting his team, forward, forward, forward. He was crying out because they needed to play the ball forward to work the pattern of play to uh, perfection. And if you know anything about Paul's spirituality in this letter, that, that certainly is the, the direction of his spirituality, isn't it? Forward, 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 further up, further in. Progress in joy, progress in faith, progress in Christ. Forgetting what lies behind, he says, and pressing on to the goal of the upward call in Jesus Christ. So, focus on progressing in Jesus Christ. Number two, certainly the heartbeat of this passage is focus on prizing Jesus Christ. It was an interesting day in the Stone family's life. Yesterday, our oldest son, Hudson, had a soccer tournament down in Austin. So we woke up in the dark hours of the morning to drive all the way down to Austin for his morning game. And then we stayed till later in the night when, you know, he had his evening game and drove all the way back. And it also happened to be not just the day of his soccer tournament, it was Knox Andrews' birthday yesterday. So his birthday happened down in Austin, Texas. So he got to choose various things that we did between the games. And of course, there was a singular moment, as children, I trust you would understand, how it got Knox excited, perhaps uniquely so, was when we gave him a gift his birthday present, right? Uh, there was a smile that stretched across his face unlike any other across the way yesterday because he, he got a gift, didn't he? Did you know that every time you wake up and God grants you another day, you wake up to a new gift that is growing in Jesus Christ? That God in his mercy and grace has given you the greatest gift that you could ever receive. And so that's why if you look again what he says in verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. The word there for desire, it's unusually intense in the original language. It's even one that you could use for lust in other places, such as Paul's desire for 
Christ? I wonder if you could say, yes, I treasure, I I prize, and I cherish my Savior so much that being with Him is better than anything else. I hope you can. And I do hope you will this year be able to say to me, for me to live as Christ and to die, that's gain. There's joy to be found in living. There's also joy to be found in dying. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give us and that redeemed heart of godliness that pants for the living water that's found only in your Son, and that you would satisfy our longings for him, that you would sustain us in our suffering, that you would grow us in our affliction, that we might find joy in every season, and joy ultimately found in a life increasingly conformed to your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.